Well, we continue our journey through the book of Romans, and this morning we come to Romans chapter 7, where we will grapple with the place of the law in God's plan and the place of the law in the Christian life. And understanding the place of the law is really important for many reasons. I want to mention three before we jump in. Number one, this issue that we're going to cover this morning, this issue of law and Old Covenant, New Covenant, and Jew and Gentile and Old Testament, New Testament, and continuity and discontinuity, it occurs again and again and again and again in the New Testament. I mentioned as we started Romans, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons Paul wrote Romans was to unite the church around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll see later specifically Jews and Gentiles who were divided mostly over the place of the law of Moses. So it's really important if we're going to understand our Bibles. Number two, Related to that, it helps us understand how the Bible is put together. It helps us understand the way the Bible is structured. When Paul says law in Romans, he means the old covenant law, the Jewish law, the law of Moses. And one of the main ways the Bible is structured is around these two covenants, old covenant law and new covenant. So it's important to understand how we put the Bible together. And the number three, and especially for you young people, the understanding of the place of the law is important for our apologetics, for how we defend the faith, because Christians are increasingly mocked and ridiculed and accused of not taking the Bible seriously. And so you'll have professors say things like, hey, do you believe in Leviticus 1918, which says, love your neighbor? Say, yeah. They say, well, what about the very next verse that forbids us from sowing two kinds of seed in our garden?" Or wearing clothes made of two kinds of material. Probably everyone in here is wearing clothes made of two kinds of material. Do you not believe that? Or just a little bit later in that same chapter, it says, don't cut your hair. Don't trim your beard. Do you believe in that? Leviticus 11 calls shrimp detestable. I, a Christian pastor, happen to think it's not detestable but delightful. Deuteronomy 14 says that we should not eat pork. I like bacon-wrapped shrimp. <laughs> and so they'll say, you hypocrite. You don't actually believe the Bible. You just pick and choose whatever you want. You don't really take God's word seriously. Here's one of my favorites, Tim Tebow, God bless him, the famous whipping boy for all things atheistic. Maybe you've seen this meme. Pigskin ball, Leviticus 11, 7 to 8, which says you can't even touch pigs or you become unclean. Oh, no. Tim Tebow's unclean because he touches a pigskin pig ball. Well, actually, footballs aren't made of actual pigskin. But what we're going to see this morning is they're not understanding the Bible. They're not understanding the way God has revealed himself. They're not understanding the actual teaching of Scripture. So it's an important topic. Let's look at Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. It's page 887 if you're using one of our pew Bibles. Romans 7 1. Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. 
through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised, has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Way to summarize this morning's passages. We're not under the law of Moses, but we're under the law of Christ. We have a principle in verse 1, then the illustration of the principle in verses 2 to 3, and then the application in verses 4 to 6. So first, the principle of law, Romans 7, 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, would have been the whole church, Jew and Gentile, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Notice he says that again, do you not know? Again, he he did that a few times in chapter six. Don't you know, don't you know? Paul's at pain. He's like, you should know this. We've, We've been, this is basic Christian teaching. You ought to understand God's plan and God's purposes. And he lays down a basic principle, a basic fact. The law is only binding as long as a person is alive. You don't have to worry about the speed limit once you're in the casket. It's pretty basic. Common sense. Then he illustrates it in verses 2 to 3. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Husband dies. Wife's no longer bound to that marriage covenant. She's free from that marriage, free to remarry. Pretty straightforward, right? Marriage brings with it certain obligations and responsibilities, but they no longer apply after the spouse has died. So that's the illustration. And then thirdly, we turn to the application, the meat of the passage in verses 4 to 6. Look at Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. We've died to the law through the body of Christ. And again, it's really important in this passage, law means Jewish law. Law means law of Moses, Mosaic law, law given at Sinai, the body of commandments given to the nation of Israel. And he says, you've died to it. New Covenant believers have died to the law of Moses. That should sound familiar, especially if we've been reading straight through. In chapter 6, he says we've died to sin in chapter 6, verse 2. We've died to the power of sin, and we've died to the power of the law. And we've seen there's this tight connection in Romans between law and sin, like half a dozen so far. Let me just mention two. One is Romans 3.20, that through the law comes the knowledge of sin, So we learn about sin through the law or chapter 5, verse 20, that the law came in to increase sin. Next next week's passage is all about how sin has co-opted the law. But he notice, he says here, we've died to the law. How? Through the body of Christ. Speaking of the death of Christ. If we read Ephesians chapter 2, it says something very similar. Ephesians 2, 14. says, speaking of Jesus, he himself is our peace 
who's made us, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Well, what was the dividing wall of hostility? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus on the cross has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall, the the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So through the cross, Jesus abolishes the law so that he might bring us together. We died to the law through the death of Jesus. Because of the cross, Christians are not bound to the law of Moses died to the law through the body of Jesus. So the cross here has so much going on. It's the pivot point of the ages, the cross is. It's where history shifts, right? From BC to AD, Galatians 1.4, Jesus gave himself for our sins, cross, in order to deliver us from the present evil age. Jews would view history in terms of two ages. You have the evil age, present age, then the Messiah would come and the spirit would come and resurrection would happen and then the age to come. And in Christianity, they overlap. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has yanked God's future into the present. So now we're delivered from the present evil age. We're no longer Romans chapter 5 in Adam. Now we're in the last Adam. So the cross is the the great exchange, the sinful for the righteous, the righteous in place of the sinful. But the cross is also the great transition, moving us from Adam to Christ, from the old age to the new age, from the old covenant to the new covenants. The cross ushers in the new covenant. So the old covenant law is no longer our binding authority. We're dead to the law through the body of Christ. Now, this is really important. I want to preempt any emails. This does not mean that the Old Testament is not the authoritative inerrant word of God. It is. It means that the old covenant law is no longer our direct binding authority. You can eat shrimp, even bacon wrapped. You don't have to obey obey the laws of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, but it's still the word of God. I try to show regularly in my preaching that the Old Testament is a treasure trove of insight and revelation about who God is, about how it points to the coming of Jesus. And we can still learn so much about the character of our great God, even from the laws. So we may not be bound to obey a certain law, but we can still learn about the one who gave that law, right? Just think about Deuteronomy 22, where one of the laws was to build a parapet around the roof of your house. It was a commandment. It wasn't an option. We don't have to obey that. We're not under the laws of Deuteronomy. But what was God? Why did God do that? Well, because in ancient culture, they would hang out up there. It would hang out on the roof. It was the norm. And so God commanded that his people build a fence. Why? Because he cares about people cares about the safety of his people didn't want anybody falling off so today maybe we could apply the principle of this as if we have a pool maybe we build a fence around the pool or maybe we've got a big dog in the backyard we put a beware of dog sign because we don't want people to be hurt we care about people we can ask questions like what kind look at a law and we can say what kind of situation was this law intended to promote in this case well the safety and well-being of people what kind of community would be created when these commands are followed. So how would it shape a people? What, what made this command necessary or desirable? Or again, what principles can we learn? It's still the word of God, but we're not bound by the old covenant law directly. 
And then we still uphold the law. Maybe you remember Romans 3.31. We don't, we don't abolish the law. We uphold the law, Romans 3.31. And then bad chapter break into Romans 4. We see how he goes to the law, the Torah, and he shows how Abraham is an example of justification by faith and not by works. So the law is upheld and then it points forward. Or Romans 3.21 that says the law bears witness. It prophesies about the coming righteousness of God. So we still uphold it as the word of God about his character and about his purposes and his promises. Or maybe you're thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Well, Jesus, the word fulfill there means to bring about that which it pointed forward to. As we see all through Matthew, it's the scriptures might be fulfilled. The scriptures might be fulfilled. So his purposes are the pinnacle of God's promises. But we don't need to soften the language here. It says we are dead to the law of Moses. It's no longer our direct binding authority. And fact is, as Old Testament scholar David Dorsey points out, we're not even able to obey vast, the vast majority of it, of it if we wanted to. You know, even pick on the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath command commands us to work six days. That's part of the commands. But Saturdays, we're not to do anything. Most of us do things on Saturdays. We cook, we go out to eat, we mow our grass. Most of our jobs don't employ us for six days a week, just five. Or Dorsey points out several. He says... Because we're not a theocratic nation, the church is international, we're not in the Middle East. We don't, for example, hang roofs on our house because we don't hang out up there. My roof is rather steep. Exodus 29 commands the Israelites to take the fat of the ram tail. And I, for one, I can't keep this command because I live in West Texas and I haven't seen any Palestinian fat-tailed sheep running around lately. It's just an impossibility. I can't keep Exodus 22.5 and 29.40 because I don't own a vineyard, as profitable as that might be. Exodus 23 says to let the land lie unplowed during the seventh year. But I can't apply this or all of the other similar commandments of outlining how to cultivate the Mediterranean olive tree and the uses of its fruits. Exodus 25 through 29 speaks of the production of the pomegranate, the date palm, the acacia, the almond, cassie, cinnamon, galbanum, frankincense, hyssop, near eastern poplar, and bitter herbs. Now, Walmart carries a lot of things. I don't know that they carry all that. Leviticus 23 commands the Israelites to begin harvesting the standing grain seven weeks after the Passover in May or June. But this command requires a Levantine Mediterranean climate. I can't keep it. Here's how Dorsey summarizes. He says, the Sinaitic law code, what we're talking about, the Jewish law, law of Moses, Mosaic Law, Torah, the Sinaitic Law Code was very specifically designed by God to regulate the lives of the West Semitic inhabitants of the Southern Levant. Nearly all the regulations of the corpus, over 95%, are so culturally specific, geographically limited, and so forth, that they would be completely inapplicable and, in fact, unfulfillable to Christians living throughout the world today. This fact alone should suggest that the corpus is not legally binding upon Christians and that it cannot possibly represent the marching orders for the church. What he's saying is what Paul's saying in Romans 7. New Covenant Christians are not bound to the law of Moses. Look at verse 4 again, Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit 
for God. So we're dead to the law, but we belong to another. Dead to the law of Moses, married to Christ who was raised. And so if anyone says, wait a minute, are you saying we can live however we want? We've died the law so we can just do whatever? No. In fact, Paul's already addressed this a couple of times in Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then if we're saved by grace? Are we continue to sin that grace may abound? No way, by no means. And he said it again in verse 15. What then are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. We're united to Christ. As Christians, we don't look to Moses. We look to Christ. We belong to another. Married to another. And marriage is a really good illustration of the Christian life. Those of you who are married know that marriage changes everything. When you get married, no part of your life is unaffected. Big or small, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, where you go, when you go. It's no longer me, it's we. And so everything is different when we get married. Some of you guys, you had one towel before you were married. You washed it four times a year. <laughs> one towel on one rack. And then you got married and you got towels on racks and towels on towels on racks. And you don't even touch them. They're just for looks, for you and your wife and your bathroom. <laughs> Some of you guys, before you were married, you had one pillow on your bed. And you got married, and all of a sudden you have ten. <laughs> and it seems to increase every year, right? My kids, kids and I play hide-and-go-seek. My favorite hiding spot is underneath Pillow Mountain. <laughs> it can never find me. And I can't make it. I've given up long ago making the bed. I am incompetent at pillow placement. As a bachelor, I had one bowl, one plate, one knife, one fork, one spoon. Some of you guys were brilliant, and you just efficiently combined it with a spork. <laughs> now you've got dishes upon dishes, dishes you never touch. Marriage changes every bit of us, and being united to Christ changes every bit of us. Jesus is now Lord. That little statement that we confess so quickly has life-altering implications. A complete change of allegiance has happened as we become a Christian. And so there's no part of us now, our habits, our time, our actions, our money, our thoughts, over which he does not have authority as Lord. It was Abraham Kuyper who said, there's not a single square inch on God's green earth where the risen Christ does not say, mine. John Calvin said, no Christian is his own man. We died to the law, but we belong to another. Paul says something real similar in Galatians 2, 19. It says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live. Our old ego, our old agenda, our selfishness was crucified at the cross on Golgotha. 2 Corinthians 5 says one of the reasons Jesus died is that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who was raised. We lose our lives for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ that we might gain true life. We no longer live, but Christ lives through us. We belong to another. We do not belong to ourselves. Romans 6 says we were once slaves of sin. Now we are slaves of righteousness. So just because we're not under the Mosaic law does not mean we're lawless. 
To be without the law does not mean we're now outlaws. No, we belong to another. We look to Jesus for us to see how we ought to live. This is God's grand purpose in all of history. We'll see in chapter 8, 29 is that his people might be conformed to the image of his son. God's big plan is to form his people to look like his son. He's the firstborn of many brothers. And our goal is to be conformed to Jesus and help others be conformed to Jesus. That's the goal. We're to be about him, to be like Christ. He's the one who said, follow me. Jesus' people, little Christs. That's actually what the word Christian means. It's who we're to be about. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians. It's right after Romans. Keep your finger in Romans. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians nine twenty. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, really just talking about Jews again. So again, he's talking about the law of Moses here. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Really important parenthetical comment here, though. Though not being myself under the law. This is the Apostle Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, saying he's not under the Jewish law. I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. Why? That I might win those under the law. Verse 21. To those outside the law. He's talking about Gentiles now. I became as one outside the law. Another important parenthetical comment. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. You see what he just did there? Three categories of people. Those under the law, Jews. Those outside the law, Gentiles. And those under the law of God. Those under the law of Christ. Did you notice now in the New Covenant era, the law of Moses is no, un- no longer the law of God. Look at it again. Verse 21, to those outside the law became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, even though he already told us he's not under the law of Moses, but under the law of Christ. And in this context, what does it mean to be under the law of Christ? I think it means to be, to absorb the pattern of Christ. And what's the pattern of Christ? It's to give of self for the good of others. Another way of talking about love. It's to give up our own agenda and give up our own rights that we might serve those around us. We see that just in the very context. Look at chapter nine, verse 12. If others share this, share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure, we bear the burdens, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. There's these certain rights that they have, but he gives away the rights that others might benefit. He does the same there in verse 15. Chapter 9, I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He gives up his rights because Jesus is the one who gave up his rights. Look at chapter 10, verse 24. Here's a great definition of love. Here's a great definition of the law of Christ. Let no one seek his own good. Don't be selfish, but the good of his neighbor. What does it mean to be one who follows Jesus? We're not about ourselves. We're about our neighbors. We give of self for the good of our neighbor, but he's not done. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. 
give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. There again, we have these three categories of people. We're no longer Jews, even if we're ethnically Jew. We're no longer Gentiles, even if we're ethnically Gentile. We're the church. Verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. There it is again. There's the law of Christ. What does it mean to be under the law of Christ? We don't seek our own advantage. We give of self for the good of others. And notice we got another unfortunate chapter break. Chapter 11, verse 1. How does he conclude? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What does it mean to be under the law of Christ, to belong to another? We give of self for the good of others. Galatians 6, 2 says the same thing. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are those who bear one another's burdens. Our, our vertical love is demonstrated horizontally primarily to the church of Jesus Christ. As we bear burdens, as we give of self for the good of others, we fulfill the law of the Messiah. He's our example. He shows us how to bear burdens primarily through the cross. Again and again and again, the Bible points us to the cross, not only for our salvation, but for the shape of our lives. I want to show you just from a few more passages. We belong to another. We look to Jesus. We center everything on him. Philippians chapter 2. Hopefully a familiar passage, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition... Sounds similar, right? Do nothing for your own interest. Don't be selfish or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And now he points to our example, who, though he was in the form of God, he had that right he had the right to do whatever he wanted, but he did not count equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice the pattern. Though he had every right, he gave it up for the good of others. And that's for what we're to do as well. Not focused on ourselves, but focused on the benefit of someone else. Just imagine how our church would be transformed if we came in here and we lived our lives with that mindset. Not me, but they. That's what it means to belong to another. Let me show you some more though. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And he points us to the gospel as God in Christ forgave you. Another bad chapter break. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. What does that mean? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Then the same chapter of Ephesians 5, the primary call of the husband is love their wife. What does that love look like? Jesus, as Christ loved the church. How was that? Gave himself for her. Gave himself up. In the context of generosity, what does the Bible do? Does it say, you need to give, you need to, here's the law. No, it points to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are all about giving. And what does the Spirit do there? He looks to the cross. 2 Corinthians 8 9. 
For though he, was, though he was rich, you know the grace of our Lord, though he was rich, though he had that right, for your sake, he became poor. He gave up his rights. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's motivation to give. Flip back to Romans. Let's look at Romans 15. Verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. That verb bear is the same one we read in Galatians 6 2. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is a big deal. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Why? Verse 3, 4, because Christ did not please himself. We look to Jesus. We're married to another. Jesus is our north star. Romans 7, 4, once again, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. This is what God wants. He wants us to bear fruit. In the old covenant, Israel did not bear fruit. They were mostly idolaters. But now we're united to Christ and we bear fruit. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. John 15, 8. By this, my Father's glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We bear fruit for God now that we're united to Christ and have the Spirit. We glorify Him in all that we do. Our lives are to reflect Him and redound to His glory. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we are to do all we do to glorify God. Go to Romans 7, 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. While we were unbelievers, flesh is not just our physical bodies. Flesh is our unregenerate self, who we were in Adam. Romans 8, 9 is going to tell us we're no longer in the flesh as believers. Now we're in the spirit. And when we were in the flesh, we didn't bear fruit for God. We bore fruit for death, he says. The life we lived, we, the life that we produced, the fruit we produced was headed straight to the grave because ultimately everything we did was for the glory of self, not for the glory of God, which leads to death. C.T. Studd, only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And he says, the Paul, the, the Paul says, the law stimulates rebellion. Our sinful passions were aroused by the law. He says, remember, that wasn't the, the common Jewish view. The common Jewish view was that the law restrained sin, not Paul. Paul says it actually increases sin, 520. You see that sign that says, do not touch? What's your first fallen impulse? To touch it. While in the flesh, our sin was aroused by the law, bearing fruit for death. We have this terrible quartet, law, sin, flesh, death. And again, notice the progression. This is so important if we're going to deal with sin. Parents and grandparents, this is so important as we shepherd little hearts. It doesn't start with the external actions. 
Sin never does. It always starts right here. Our sinful passions, it says, were at work in our members. We must never think sin is merely external actions. It begins with these sinful passions or these evil desires that then lead to external sin, lead to sin with our members, with our bodies. It starts in the heart and works its way out. Romans 7, 6. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. But now, here we have another one of those glorious buts. We've seen them a few times in Romans 3. Early on, it was sin, 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 death. Verse 3, 21, but now the righteousness of God's been revealed. We saw it in chapter 6. Look at verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now we have this new moment in our history and in redemptive history. And he basically says what he already said in verse 4. We're released from the law. He says, though we're released from that which held us captive. Paul uses really similar language over in the letter to Galatians. I want to read it there. It helps us understand God's purposes in the law. Galatians 3.17. This is what I mean. The law, again, speaking of the law of Moses, which came 430 years afterward. What he's talking about is after the promises to Abraham. So the law didn't start till after Abraham. He's just reading the Bible as a story. It does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. You notice this contrast between law and promise. So a good question is raised in verse 19. Well, why then the law? What's the point? And he says, just like he says in Romans 5.20, it was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Notice what we're learning here. God creates, God promises to Abraham, Genesis 12 and following. 430 years later, God gives the law. Until the offspring should come. And so it was always God's plan that the law of Moses be temporary after Abraham and until the Messiah. We'll see that again. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Same language, being held captive, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. The law was a guardian. The, probably the best translation for that word is babysitter or nanny. It's not teacher. King James got this one wrong. There's another word for teacher. It's actually the, the domestic babysitter that would take a child from the home to the school, to the teacher. The point Paul's making, it was temporary. Once Christ comes, we're no longer under the law. It's no longer our guardian here in Romans 7. We've been released from what held us captive. 
But what was the purpose? What's the purpose of being released from the law? Romans 7, 6. Now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So that spirit, not written code. This contrast is about different eras in God's plan. You had the written code, now you have the spirit. And there's about a dozen of these contrasts. Redemptive history is structured again around two people, Adam and the last Adam. And two primary covenants, old covenant and new covenant. Adam, last Adam, old age, new age, old covenant, new covenant, death, resurrection, law, gospel, futility, hope, judgment, justification, law, promise. Elsewhere, law, faith, sin, righteousness, flesh, spirit, slavery, freedom. You get the idea. The spirit is the new age. The written code is the old. And we've already seen this a couple times in Romans. The end of Romans 2, he speaks of being circumcised in heart by the spirit, not the letter. God's purposes have changed. Jesus has yanked God's future into being. Now we live in the age of the spirit, no longer the age of the written code. Romans 6, 14, we're no longer under law, but under grace. 2 Corinthians 3 says that God made us ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirits. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. We serve in the new way of the spirit. This indicates a fulfillment of the promises of the new covenant. Prophet after prophet spoke about the gift of the Spirit. Joel 2, Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 36. In the future, God's going to make you right by ending the sacrificial system. And he's going to change you from the inside out so that you'll finally be able to obey. Well, that's us, friends. That's the church. Change from the inside out. Serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. Not the old covenant, but the new covenant. The letter represents the old covenant law which demanded obedience, but because the vast majority of Israel didn't have the spirit, they could not obey. It demanded obedience, but it didn't enable obedience, which is why we saw in the history of Israel is the history of idolatry. One of my mentors in the faith, John Riesinger, used to say that the old covenant should have came with a warning. Batteries not included. There was no power in it. It could only command, but it couldn't produce the power to obey. John Bunyan put it this way. Run, John, run. The law commands, but it neither gives me feet nor hands. Tells me to run, but it doesn't give me what I need to run. Which is why 2 Corinthians 3 called it a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. Because when law meets hard hearts, death is the result. When commands meet unregenerate flesh, condemnation comes. But the Spirit, the gift of the new covenant, transforms us. The letter kills, the Spirit gives life. The Spirit transforms. Run, John, run, the law commands, but it neither gives me feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Tells me what to do, but it gives me the power to be able to do it. The Spirit does what the law couldn't do. Romans 8, 3. Rules don't change us. We need rules, but they don't change us. The gospel changes us. The love of Jesus is what changes us. We need heart change, not law. It's like the teenage boy doesn't adhere to rules, neglects his chores, won't shower, 
won't work, won't clean his room. Rules don't motivate him until he meets a girl. Gets a job, showers every day, doing those chores, cleaning his car. Well, what happened? The girl got his heart. The law doesn't transform. We did a new nature. And the gift of the new covenant is that we get that new nature. Now we serve, Paul says, we serve the Lord in the newness of the spirit. Friends, we're freed from the law that we might belong to another. We're no longer under the law of Moses. We're under the law of Christ, our savior and our example. May we be a people who glory in Jesus Christ, our savior, and seek to imitate Christ, our example.